Hello and welcome to Wangaratta Baptist Church. My name is Pastor Aaron. I'm so thrilled that you've decided to join with us today for this message. This message was recorded live at one of our Sunday morning services, which are on every Sunday at 10 a.m. right here in Wangaratta. If you're here uh, in town on a Sunday, then why not come along and join with us in fellowship with other believers as we open the word together and hear from the scriptures. But if you are connecting with us online, don't let this replace uh, coming to a, a local church. Uh, they are vitally important for the growth of all believers. And so get along to your local church. But if not, then, then at least help. let this be a supplement to help you in your walk with the Lord. And so we do believe that the, the scriptures are the inerrant word of God and they're here to train us and equip us. And so we will be speaking and opening up the scriptures together. So, so get your Bibles out and follow along. And I trust that this message that you are watching today will really encourage you and inspire you and help you understand the hope that we do have in Jesus Christ. May it be a blessing to you. But throughout the Gospels, we constantly see the tension between the scribes and the Pharisees the lawyers and the priests of the day with Jesus. We see them baiting Jesus. We see them arguing with Jesus and challenging Jesus. And these ways of challenging Jesus are things that we can so easily fall into ourselves if we're not careful as well. We are human after all. And so today I want to teach through at least seven ways that we, like the Pharisees, may challenge Jesus, which are recorded for us in this chapter of Luke. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, speak to us as we open the, your word this morning. And uh, Lord, I pray uh, that you would be here amongst us and speaking into each one of our lives and challenging us uh, in ways that we can uh, learn and grow into uh, more love for you and more love for each other and our understanding of you too. So we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, when I say challenging Jesus, I probably need to explain myself before we kick off straight in there. So I'm not talking about questioning God in the process of learning, right? That's a very good thing to do, in fact. We should challenge our thoughts about God as we read the Bible and make sure that they are informed by Scripture and conform to what the Bible teaches. What I'm more talking about here, though, is when we challenge Jesus' authority and sovereignty over our lives and the world we live in. So when we challenge Jesus, that's what I'm talking about here, the traps we can fall into where we challenge his authority and sovereignty. When we challenge his will challenge his design, challenge his revelation of himself, challenge his teaching. When we do this, when we challenge Jesus, we're actually replacing sovereign God with ourselves. We're saying, I know better than you, Jesus. I, I'll think and I'll do what I, I think is right in my eyes with no regard given to you. That's what I mean by challenging Jesus. The first example is this, it's external appearance. Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. 
The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So when we become more concerned at how we might look to other people rather than how we might look to God, then we are challenging Jesus. When we're placing a higher value on what other people might think of about us rather than what God thinks about us, we're valuing the thoughts of men above the thoughts of God. And this can have disastrous consequences. This is what leads us into things like consumerism, to shallow lives of stress and pressure to keep up with the latest fashions, trends, technology, and can even spread to the latest woke thing to be offended by today. All so we don't look or come across wrong to other people. And this becomes a never-ending cycle that we will never accomplish or achieve because the goals are constantly shifting and moving. The pursuit to be looked upon favourably by others, if achieved, will only be fleeting at best. Look what Jesus says, but give us arms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. What Jesus is saying is this, Focus on the inside. Make that right, that which God sees rather than what man sees. If that means being generous to the poor as an expression of your trust in me, then great. When your will aligns with mine, when your inside is right with me, everything is clean for you. That's when you've got it right. Other translations render this verse's meaning by saying that giving to the poor is how you clean the inside. This seems like a simple formula, but it is deeper than that. It expresses a resignation of personal ambition over a desire to honour God with all of who we are and all of what we have. So giving to the poor is one way we can materially express our will is aligned with God's and that that matters more than how we look to other people. So challenge one is external experience, uh, external appearance. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks of you. Your standing before God is what matters. Challenge two is rules. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy or Chronicles, wherever you read law about tithing, there were no details mentioned about tithing herbs. But what the Pharisees had done is that they had taken the letter of the law to the most impractical lengths that they would even set aside 10% of the herbs that grew in their garden. This completely missed the heart of God's law and set in place a a, a big set of man-made rules that must be kept 
to, to guarantee, if you like, your right standing with God. Rules that would be whole of life consuming. Every moment of every day spent adhering to the precise details, rendering the person completely useless to anyone else. And even worse, it would actually lead these people to neglect others, to neglect justice, to neglect loving God by loving others because they were so consumed with keeping the strictest of rules which God never asked them to take that far. There is a tendency for us also to make our own little rules that go beyond what God has asked of us. Well-intentioned and well-meaning little rules that may have started out to aid and assist us, but in the end become snares and traps. I guess on the lighter end, you could call these traditions, and on the severe end, you would call it religion. And I hate religion. I hate religion because it is a system of things that you must do to adhere to in order to earn God's favour. That's religion. And this church is not a religion. It is not a religious church because there is nothing that we have to do to earn God's favour. Because I do not read in the Bible that to earn God's favour, I have to do this and this and this and this. That's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus doesn't come to teach a whole bunch of rules. He teaches a way of living in light of the truth. That we are saved by the love and grace of God through our faith in the personal work of Jesus, not by anything we might do so we may not boast. We cannot earn God's favour through keeping rules and regulations and laws or by doing anything. We earn God's favour by responding to his free gift of salvation with faith and repentance and then obeying Jesus is a natural outworking of that change within us, that desire to bring God glory in all we do. But there is no set of rules that, that we must do this to earn God's favour. That was done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, yes, there are things that we can do to please God, but they're focused on bringing him glory, not on earning a favourable position for us. That's the big point. Rules might help you keep focused, but it's only God's grace that earns us his favour. So challenge one is external appearance. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks of you. Your standing before God is what matters. Challenge two is rules. Rules turn into religion, but there is no work that we can do to earn God's favour. That's given to us when we respond with faith and repentance. And challenge three, self-promotion, verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. The Pharisees would use their status and the system to uphold their high position in society. They would expect the best seats in the synagogue, the ones of utmost prominence. They would expect people to greet them as venerable and esteemed members of the community in public. They would use their position within the Jewish 
religious community to promote themselves and ensure their prominence and status continued. Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees' love of position and glory and the public displays that pandered to their pride. This is really the crux of self-promotion. It's all about pride. Position, rank, prominence, if these things are important to you above serving God and others humbly, then maybe a spirit of Pharisee has snuck into you, a spirit of pride. Don't fall to the trap of pride. Instead, take joy in humbly serving Jesus. So challenge one, external appearance. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks of you. Your standing before God is what matters. Challenge two is rules. Rules turn into religion, but there is no work that we can do to earn God's favour. That's given to us when we respond with faith and repentance. And challenge three is self-promotion. Don't fall to the trap of pride. Instead, take joy in humbly serving Jesus. And challenge four deception. Verse 44, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, when you read that, do you know what the significance of an unmarked grave is in Jewish culture? Yeah, I wasn't so keen on knowing that straight off my head either. I had to look it up. And I give you a bit of history the Pharisees scrupulously avoided touching graves because to come in contact with a grave would render you ritually defiled. And so then you would have to go about all these rules and regulations adhering to these things to regain your ritual purity. It was a hard thing to do. It was a lot of things you had to do to, to regain your purity. And to what Jesus is saying, that, that however, they themselves defiled people who contacted them as they had become that which they sought to avoid. They had become graves and they defiled those who unknowingly walked over them or came into contact with them. While trying to rem uh, remain richly pure themselves, what they're actually doing was defiling many other people who are unaware of the Pharisees' influence over them. Their sins contaminated the whole nation. They had led the Jewish nation away from bringing glory to God and serving God and had turned Judaism into a religious cult. They had sinned, and even worse... In doing so, they had deceived the whole nation into thinking that they were correct, that the religion that they espoused was of God. When we see here clearly from Jesus that they had killed the heart of Judaism and changed it into something that God never designed nor desired it to become. Their greatest concern was with ritual purity Yet they had strayed so far from the heart of the law that they had killed it and become unmarked graves themselves, defiling everyone around them. They had deceived themselves and deceived everyone around them. And that's why the gospel is so important for us. 
If the gospel is not central to our lives, then we too could fall into deception. We too could easily fall into replacing the truth in God's heart for us with a lie or a substitute. Now, I believe the closest example that exists in Christianity today is the prosperity gospel. It says that poverty is a sin. It says give in order to gain material compensation from God. You give and you'll be blessed by God. It says that God's covenant has been established with Abraham and prosperity is a provision of that covenant. And so as spiritual children of Abraham, we must realize that prosperity belongs to us now. That's what it teaches. The prosperity gospel says that prayer is a tool to force God to grant you prosperity. It turns prayer into a tool that believers can use to force God to grant their desires. It equates Christian faith with material and particularly financial success. Those who are most right with God are the richest because God has blessed them more. So they must be better with God because of the more blessing they have. That's the prosperity gospel. It's fundamentally flawed. At bottom, it is a false gospel because of its faulty view of the relationship between God and man. Simply put, if the prosperity gospel is true, then grace is obsolete, God is irrelevant, and man is the measure of all things. Whether they're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the atonement, giving, faith, or prayer, prosperity teachers turn the relationship between God and man into a quid pro quo transaction. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. Because I've done this, you better do that for me, right? And so many people are deceived because so many people are searching for wealth and prosperity and proponents of the prosperity gospel preach to them everything they want to hear. But it's not truth. It is deception. Don't fall to the dazzle of deceit when the truth of the gospel is plain to behold. So challenge one, external appearance. Challenge two is rules. Challenge three, self-promotion. And challenge four is deception. Don't fall to the dazzle of deceit when the truth of the gospel is plain to behold. Challenge five, legalism. Verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers as well. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The lawyer who spoke up wanted to distinguish his group, the scribes, from the Pharisees. But Jesus refused to do so because the scribes were as hypocritical as the Pharisees. The lawyers involved themselves more in the interpretation of the law, whereas the Pharisees generally advocated and enforced those interpretations. And to Jesus... They were two sides of the same corrupt coin. By interpreting the law strictly, these scribes placed heavy moral burdens on the Jews. However, they had cleverly found out ways of escaping their own responsibility to keep the law, while at the same time giving the impression that they were obedient. 
This reflected a lack of love for the rest of the, um, the Jews who had to labour under their demands. The way I see this root expressed in the church today is through legalism. Legalism abstracts the law of God from its original context. Some people seem to, pre, to be preoccupied in the Christian life with obeying rules and regulations, and they conceive of Christianity as being a series of do's and don'ts, a cold and deadly set of moral principles. However, legalism obeys the letter of the law, but violates the spirit of the law. And legalism even adds our own rules to God's law and treats them as divine. This plays out disastrously when Christians impart a whole set of external tests as the measure of authentic Christianity, a deadly violation of the gospel because it would substitute human tradition for the real fruits of the Spirit. We come perilously close to blasphemy by misrepresenting Christ in this way. Where God has given liberty, we should never enslave people with man-made rules. We must be careful to fight any form of legalism. In our Baptist tradition, these struggles with legalism have in the past played out in areas such as prohibition on dancing. Not in this church, we have a dance floor. Um, but, but yeah, dancing is definitely one where you know prohibitions have been made in the past in the Baptist tradition. Prohibitions on drinking and even the expectation that all prayer meetings and services are attended as a mark of how spiritually um, connected with Jesus you are. Can't miss a service. And if there's two, well, the most holy people go twice on Sunday, isn't it? Look, you've, you've all been there, right? And it's not just the Baptists. But let me say this. We must not substitute human tradition for genuine fruit of the Spirit. We must not be enticed into creating external tests as the measure of authentic Christianity. So challenge one, external appearance. Don't worry about what anyone thinks of you. It's what God, you're standing before God is what, import, is what matters. Rules turn into religion. There's no work we can do to earn God's favour. That's given to us when we respond with faith and repentance. Self-promotion. Don't fall to the trap of pride. Instead, take joy in humbly serving Jesus. Deception. Don't fall to the dazzle of deceit when the truth of the gospel is plain to behold. And challenge five is legalism. We must not substitute human tradition for genuine fruit of the Spirit or be enticed into creating external tests as the measure of authentic Christianity. And challenge six is building monuments. Verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." 
So what's happening here is that the lawyers were leading the building of new tombs to replace the older tombs of Israel's prophets. Sort of like a beautification process undertaking of their cemetery. However, Jesus saw in this practice an ironic testimony to their, to their opponents, sorry, to their opposition to God's recent prophets. When you consider what they were doing for these old prophets compared to how they were treating John the Baptist and even Jesus himself, there was a marked difference. They were persecuting and trying to kill Jesus and John the Baptist. And Jesus is saying, but you're spending all this time building these new tombs and, and, you know, in the cemetery plot for these old prophets. You're treating them really well, but your fathers, they were the ones that killed them. And so it's a real strange dichotomy that's being expressed here. By building these tombs, the Lord's appeared to be honouring the prophets, but they were also walling them in and sealing them off from the people. That was the other thing that they were doing. They were building these big structures that meant that they were no longer accessible to the people. They were turning people away from the prophets of God. And in this, they were following the, the footsteps of their ancestors as they continued to do this with John the Baptist and Jesus. The lawyers claimed the greatest wisdom in Israel by declaring that their interpretation of scriptures were the correct ones. However, Jesus, in this passage, he cited a greater source of wisdom. And he then points out that God's people would typically reject the prophets and messengers whom he sent them. The result would be that God would hold, them, uh, hold the present generation of rejectors responsible. This last rejection would be the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the rejection of God's own son, not just his servants. It would prove to be the rejection that would add the last measure of guilt that would result in God pouring out his wrath for all those unjustified murderers throughout history right from Abel at the very beginning of the first book to Zechariah at the end of the last book of the Hebrew Bible. So from start to finish, God's wrath is going to be poured out for all the murders that took place in between. And so the lawyers and Pharisees would build monuments to these Old Testament prophets, but were blind to what God was doing amongst them right there and then. They were living in the past and even profiting off it, yet were failing to see what God was doing amongst them, right in their midst, right in front of their faces. And I see this in the church today too. People have built monuments to the past. We've built monuments to the past in our minds as we think back to how God moved in mighty ways in our youth or with a certain pastor's ministry, or even in a church we may have once attended, we build monuments in our minds to those times and we uphold them as precious. And we sometimes even hearken back to those experiences and times and wish they could be recreated today. But in doing that, we might miss what God is doing amongst us right now, right here today. I had some wonderful experiences in my youth at church with great friends, precious moments that I will treasure and always look back upon fondly. But if all I did was just seek to recreate those experiences, 
that I would miss what God is wanting to do now. Don't build monuments to the past, chasing them rather than chasing what God is doing right here and now. I had a struggle in a previous church with someone who had this amazing conversion experience and this amazing period of growth in their, their 20s. And this was an 80-year-old gentleman. And his counsel to me as a young youth pastor was, you need to do what we did back then. You need to read the King James Bible and you need to sing hymns. Because he'd built monuments and connected those two elements with that time which was very precious to him in his youth when he came to Christ and grew heaps in his spiritual walk and always looked back and was trying to get the next generation to have the same experience he did. So he thinks, well, if hymns and the King James Bible work for me, then they'll work for the next generation. What he might have missed is that God brings a new fresh revelation of himself to meet people where they're at. Jesus meets people where they are at. And whilst the King James might be a a wonderful translation for for, for many people, uh, it's fairly solid. Um, It's not for me. I can't, I, I don't like the these. I prefer English that I speak every day. And if you, you know, those King James only people, which of the hundreds of versions do they think is the right one? If it's the 1611 one, have you seen a copy of a 1611 King James Bible? It's unreadable because it's written in 1611 English. So that's another bug point, but that's the same thing. People build monuments. They uphold these things as so important to their faith that they forget about what God might be wanting to do right here, right now. They hearken back to the past. So that is challenge number six. Don't build monuments to the past, chasing them rather than chasing what God is doing right here, right now. Challenge seven, verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The people viewed the lawyers as the experts in the law. However, they rejected Jesus' teachings and therefore would not enter into the knowledge and the acceptance of his teaching would have opened to them. And even worse, they prevented and were hindering those who were trying to hear the key of knowledge for themselves from Jesus. They were defrauding the people of the truth by giving false instruction with their fraudulent claims. And their ignorance to the truth became hostility. As they would actively provoke Jesus and press Jesus, they would try to catch him out. They would try to set traps for Jesus. And Jesus' inflammatory words of criticism and condemnation fanned the smouldering embers of Pharisaic hostility into an inferno of hatred and hostility. He just poked the bear. That's basically what it did. 
He just made them hate him even more by challenging them on the things that got so wrong, yet they held so dear. There was no question as to where they stood in the sight of Jesus and what they thought about him. Jesus had challenged their expertise and they sought to defend themselves by discrediting Jesus. They plotted against Jesus, seeking to trap him and to trip him up. They tried to get Jesus to say something wrong, unwise or inappropriate because they'd been called out for their fraudulence and instead of repenting in humility, they instead doubled down and went on the attack. The Pharisees and lawyers defrauded God's people by preventing them access to the truth. Let's make sure we don't put barriers between people and Jesus. So challenge one, external appearance. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks of you. Your standing before God is what matters. Challenge two, rules turn into religion. But there's no work that we can do to earn God's favour that's given to us when we respond with faith and repentance. Challenge three, self-promotion. Don't fall to the trap of pride. Instead, take joy in humbly serving Jesus. Challenge four, deception. Don't fall to the dazzle of deceit where the truth of the gospel is plain to behold. Challenge five is legalism. We must not substitute human tradition for genuine fruit of the Spirit or be enticed into creating external tests as the measure of authentic Christianity. Challenge six, building monuments. Don't build monuments to the past, chasing them rather than chasing what God is doing right here and now. And challenge seven, we got there. Don't prevent access to the truth. Let's make sure that we don't put barriers up between people and Jesus. Those are the seven challenges the Pharisees and lawyers made to Jesus. And in the very next verse, Jesus gives a warning to those who may persist in challenging Jesus. Is that God's judgment is coming. Verse 12, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Ultimately, Jesus sums up all the challenges of the Pharisees as hypocrisy. And his warning is clear. God sees all, nothing is hidden from God and that should cause concern for those who are challenging Jesus because the reality is that God's judgment is coming. That is the inescapable fact for all of us. Jesus used leaven as an example of their hypocrisy. Leaven as hypocrisy starts small but expands and affects everything that it touches. Hypocrisy is dangerous and so we'd do well to avoid it at all costs and not fall into any of the traps that the Pharisees had done. But one thing about this passage, the first three verses of chapter 12, is that we can also see the positive aspect of the encouragement that Jesus is giving to his disciples. 
When looking at this passage in the positive, it reads that the good witness that the disciples might try to hide because of the threat of persecution would come out into the open eventually. Their light would shine brightly. So there's both caution and encouragement. Caution against hypocrisy. We will be judged by our actions and encouragement. Our witness will not be hidden. And so as I conclude this message today, may you guard your heart against hypocrisy and be encouraged that your witness will have great effect. Your quiet words of faith spoken in private will be as though they were shouted from the rooftops for those blessed by them. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray against these challenges that the Pharisees uh, fell into. As they challenge Jesus, we pray that we would not fall into any of those traps. Lord, I pray that none of us would fall into the trap of external appearances, of rules and religion, of self-promotion, of deception, of legalism, of building monuments or defrauding people. Because Lord, we do know that your judgment is coming. And maybe that might be the little bit of scare that we need. But Lord, may we also be encouraged to be witnesses to you, to shine our light brightly, and that even though those small words of faith, those quiet words of faith spoken in private, Lord, they will be shouted from the rooftops for those blessed by them. And so we do pray for an increase of, Lord, your blessing here on the words of spoken that share life and bring hope. And may, Lord, you be glorified in all things that we think, do and say. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.